Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Cinematic Universe, the podcast that does for comic book movies what James Gunn does to the royalty statements of 1970s rock bands. I'm Joe Cunningham and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick and James Hunt. We will skip the usual comic book movie and TV news discussion because this week is one of those special weeks where we are discussing a film that has been newly released in cinemas. And this week it is James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. So we will do a brief spoiler, uh, spoiler-free spoiler discussion. So if you haven't seen the film yet and you want to, still want to hear our thoughts, you can listen to that. Um, and then we'll clearly flag where the spoilers start later in the podcast when we get into the nitty-gritty of the movie. Um, but before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain to me a comic book concept that as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And I think like a lot of movie fans, guys... Um, I was surprised when the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie came out and was told that these weren't the original Guardians of the Galaxy. In fact, there were a bunch of different characters who were the Guardians of the Galaxy, and that blue guy, Yondu, was one of them. Um, so can you tell me about the original team of Guardians and maybe why we didn't see that lineup in the film? It's interesting. They're a rare sort of uh, 1960s Marvel concept that completely died on its ass and never really came back uh they were originally created in the 60s uh by arnold drake and gene colan or at least that 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 was the writer and artist of the first uh story i think some of the characters existed prior right um so basically it was uh what it was yondu uh who was a kind of like he wasn't a space pirate he was just a sort of angry guy uh from alpha centauri Hmm. uh and there was charlie 27 who was a jovian soldier uh martin x tanaga who was a crystalline guy from pluto and alvance astro who was uh from earth 
Yeah, because it was the thing wasn't the thing about it that it was set in like the thirty first century. Yeah, this is what I was about Vance to say. Astro was from the twentieth century, and um, it's a quite nice hook that he um, was a space traveler who travelled in suspended animation. <laughs> um, so by the time he got there, a thousand years had passed. Uh, it's a bit red dwarf, really. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, they they formed a team and they met a guy called Starhawk and his wife Alita. And yeah, they became the original Guardians uh, in the 31st century. Okay, and so do we need to worry about the continuity of all of that for how it led to the current team happening in the present day? Uh, the the way it happened... It's basically in the, just the name, isn't it? Yeah, the way it happened the in the present day over. was uh, the new team formed... And then they met Vance Astro or some version of Vance Astro who introduced himself as being from the Guardians of the Galaxy and they nicked the name. Like that's the right, only okay. that's the only connection that the original team has. But I guess when it comes to the movies and that they put uh Yondu into the first film, it it's just all kind of these are cosmic Marvel characters, is that? Yeah, I think that was maybe James Gunn going uh what what character exists within the guardians universe that i can possibly get michael rocker to play because <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean i, I don't know because I, I read some of but i'm not the biggest fan of the um biggest fan makes it sound like i don't like it just you know i'm not a it's a run that has obsessive fans but the the abnett and lanning guardian stuff which is what the movie's based on like did did yondu ever turn up in that because it strikes me that he wouldn't really have been He's not that really that type of character. Yeah, I mean, I've not read it either, but... He's much more of a kind of really out there space kind of character. Yeah, well, all of these Uh, guys are completely in sort of bizarre settings. Like, you know, they're from planets in the solar system, most of them. It's like, it doesn't really fit with established Marvel continuity. And that's why they're all sort of Mm. alternate universe guys or whatever. They they uh, quite when I, I remember reading about them when when writing about them for the because I've never really read the original stuff when writing about them for the the Panini uh, books that I do, and the thing that struck me was that it, they seem quite DC ish. I think because it's you know characters off in deep space, and I know obviously Marvel has its cosmic stuff, but I think DC has a lot more in terms of just being happy to go and completely set stuff off on completely different planets and have nothing to do with earth and the present day and that kind of thing. Well, I mean, that's, that's because um, like the, the selling point of Marvel's 60 stuff was always like yeah. interconnectivity. <laughs> and yet you have but, the yeah. guardians who are just literally a thousand years in the future, not really interacting with anyone. Cool. Um, and by the way, I just Apple left Yondu on the page for that comic and he only comes up in film and video game sections. So there I'm guessing go. not, I'm guessing not, Okay, cool. All right, that was good. A little bit of context on the original Guardians of the Galaxy team. Okay, um, so now begins our spoiler-free section of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 discussion. Seb, James, uh, you can fight over who goes first. Did you like it? I let Seb go first because I barely... Like, I saw it a while ago and I'm eager to hear what Seb... And, you, and you've written a review so people know what you think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I I haven't discussed what I thought of it yet. Um, I, just, I can't believe that after all of the anticipation and all of the build-up, it, it turned out to be so disappointing. I just I just can't believe it. Don't... No, I'm lying. That's a joke. <laughs> but that is that is an opinion that's out there. <laughs> 
Well, okay. I mean, what I what I wonder is is because I have seen positive word on it and I've seen negative word on it. I would kind of be amazed if anyone who loved the first film didn't love this one, and I would also be amazed if anyone who didn't like the first film liked this one, because <laughs> it really is. I mean, it's, and I don't know if this is a criticism or not to say that it's more of the same, but it because it does do some things differently, and and it and it is different from the first in in some ways, but <laughs> really. All of the reasons for liking the first one pretty much carry over to this one. And um, I'm not sure, because I've only seen it once and I've only seen it earlier today, um, I don't yet think that I necessarily prefer it to the first one. I think the first one still has the edge for various reasons, but it wouldn't surprise me if I ended up liking it more. Um, See, I, I, don't, I, don't... I was going to say, I've thought about it quite a lot and I, I think while it is more of the same like everything that the first one does differently it does better like i think mm. possibly with the exception of the jokes i think i think the funniest jokes in two were better than the funniest jokes in one but i, I think aside it's... from that i think one edges it out just a bit for me i i think the reason why i would say that that one edges it is more because of obviously you know just the total lack of expectation and well, no, there were expectations by the time the film came out, but you know what I mean. Just sort of yeah, the fact yeah, yeah. that it really did sort of come from nowhere and, and had that surprise wow factor. I do think that, I mean, I think there are ways in which this one is stronger. And I think thematically, I think it's better. Like, I, I think, I think it has a, a theme and a, <laughs> yeah. and a concept that, that holds together much better than in the first one. Well, the first one like, doesn't it, really it have runs, a theme well, or anything, yeah. does it? So. <laughs> Whereas that, I mean, it's, it's pretty on the nose and it's pretty obvious, but that theme of family runs through everything that the film does and is integral to everything yeah. that the film does mm -hmm. and i think but, that holds up really strongly and literally everything like it is it's not like there are little i mean because this is a film essentially made up of a bunch of different subplots because the team gets divided and every one of those subplots in the film is going <laughs> family family fa mm. and there's one point where i think it's literally like three or four scenes in a row where a pair of characters have some kind of confrontation or argument and they're screaming at each other and you go, I've watched this scene three times in a row now. Like, it's fine. And, but James Gunn, I get it. I, I, re I really, I really get what you're doing here. Should we, should, should we get you to complete the set, Joe? Cause we, I don't think, cause we haven't had your sort of top line opinion take yeah, on it yet. So, so, so my opinion is, and I've, I've just seen it the once as well. I saw it, um, a couple of days ago. Um, and so I, I'm willing to qualify this because I do remember, and I'm glad we weren't doing the podcast back then. I do remember walking out of Thor, the dark world and thinking that had problems, but it was so much fun. And I'll, pro I, it's probably a four star film. It's solid. It's good. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> I like, I liked it. And then about a week later going, was it? And then rewatching it and going, oh, it wasn't. Uh, but so <laughs> I am going to check that, check this, leave that qualifier out there. Um, but I really, really loved the film. Um, but I thought it had flaws. I thought it was clumsy and, uh, messy in some of its storytelling and, and yeah, definitely, definitely had problems, but I just had such a blast with it. And I thought that it, while it did hammer that family theme over and over again, I I tweeted out the hot take that if the first film was 
the best Star Wars film since The Empire Strikes Back, then this is the best Fast and Furious movie since Fast Five. <laughs> because that family thing is is like is absolutely hammered. But it I did find myself in the third act, as I did a couple of times in the first Guardians of the film, welling up a little bit and not feeling like oh, totally. I, I was being I mean, it's... emotionally <laughs> manipulated. But I, I was, was going to say, it's totally me. emotionally manipulative. We'll get to the specifics of how, but it is massively emotionally manipulative. But I, um, coming out of 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 my screening today um two quite burly scouse blokes in front of me were were talking about it and one of them went oh i got a bit sad when and i won't say what because we're in the non-spoiler section and the other one went yeah i don't know because you were crying weren't you (laughs) (laughs) james you famously hate emotional manipulation (laughs) how did how did that stuff work for you uh i didn't feel sad i just i like the jokes I mean, there was yeah, there was no part where I felt any genuine emotion for any of the characters. <laughs> I think um, I think something that I, that I will say about this, and I, and I think this is one of those things where it it really, whether it's positive or negative, really hinges on on the buy in that you have already. Because I think so much of what it does is is predicated on the notion that that you love this and that you're on board with this. Mm-hmm. Um, so much in terms of like the the bits that are really big and confident um are, are are basically doing the guardian's shtick and doing it in a way that i think in some instances could come off as a bit smug like it i think this film is really pleased with itself now i think it has good reason to be i, I really really enjoyed it i had a great time i think it has every reason to be pleased with itself because it's great but i can see that if you're not kind of instantly on board with it that might grate quite quickly. Like it doesn't feel like it's working for your affection. It feels like it knows it's already got it. When when I reviewed it, I think I called it a victory lap because it is very much like, <laughs> yeah, we're going to do the same film again, but we're going to high five you along the way. <laughs> yeah, and it is very much, and it's very much the same. And I think that I should present the counterpoint here because if we all like it to various extents, and it sounds like we do. Um, there were people out there that didn't, and the the kind of the reviews that I've read and listened to from people that didn't like it were kind of like, well, the first one was a pleasant surprise. This loses the surprise factor, and so just doing the same thing again doesn't feel like good enough. Um, which I think is a potentially valid criticism because I don't think this aims to. I don't think this aims to take the concepts further. I don't think it aims to do more within its universe. It, I think it, what it does is, is go, you like these characters, let's tell another story with them. And I mean, because no, no one feels fundamentally different than they were in the first <clears throat> film. The, mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like it's taking any more risks. It And, and in fact, it kind of like feels like suggesting the first film was taking risks is kind of ridiculous. It was just James Gunn knowing what, doing what James Gunn knows how to do. Um, and the other, the, the other criticism that I've seen of it, and in fact, um, I, I reference him all the time, but, uh, I was texting former pod guest Reese last night about the film and he said he was really, really disappointed by it, that he felt like James Gunn had had a great idea for the first Guardians film, uh, for one Guardians film that he made it three years ago and that, uh, it felt like the film wanted to be about something, but couldn't resist undercutting all of the moments that like highlighted that with jokes. And that I've seen a lot that it doesn't mm-hmm. let the emotional moments breathe because of jokes. I didn't feel that, um, but I have seen that a lot. 
um, and that there was some kind of like wasted soundtracks, uh, some wasted subplots, that the soundtrack was obvious and that, yeah, it was more of the same and that that wasn't good enough. To be like, to be fair, I genuinely think that saying, okay, it was more of the same, like, for a start, I think that underestimates how difficult it is to do that kind of movie. Because, like, yes, I they tried agree. to make Thor 2 more of the same and it turned out rubbish. So it's like... It's, and Iron Man 2. And Iron Man 2, yeah, exactly. It's easy to fuck that up. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it really would be very easy for it to be a, a bad cover version of that, not to you know stretch the analogy, <laughs> but a bad cover version of the first film. And yeah. it's not that. I mean, it, there's no, as I say, I do think that some of the moments could have come off as a as a bit smug and a bit pleased with themselves. But I but I do think they earn it. And I think you know I don't think there's there's no moments where I think it falls flat on its face, like it tries to do something and it fails. No. Um, and I yeah. also like the you know the thing of it being more of the same. I mean. Well, the title kind of tells you that it's it's not Guardians of the Galaxy, a subtitle suggesting a completely different thing. It's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. It's you know, I think it, it's almost in the kind of comics tradition of serial narrative in that it, it it's the next chapter. It's not an entirely new concept with the same characters. It's the next chapter. You know, it picks up really quickly after the first one. It dives straight into the lingering plot thread from the end of the first one. Um, yeah. It's it's the next chapter, basically. Um, and so I think as long as you know that going in, you're not going to be disappointed by that. Now, if you're expecting it to be a civil war compared with First Avenger, then, you know... I can but, see that, that that would disappoint. Again, but. just just to play devil's advocate again, I imagine that if you if the thing that you liked about the first film was that it was so fresh and different to anything that you've seen before, then that you're not going to get that aspect out of this, are you? Which I, I can imagine. Yeah, and I do think that that's the thing that this film is lacking. Yeah, I mean, for, uh, there, I was going to say... There's never a point where I didn't know what to expect. You know? Like, for me, the fact that it doesn't really do anything new is what kept it from being, like, a five-star movie. For, like, it was a definite four, just because it was nothing... Like, as well done as it was, there was nothing in there that was original. And I guess... I, I mean, I've, I've listened to uh, an interview with Chris Pratt, and he was talking about how the first film was kind of about a, a, a family coming together, and the second film being about... Uh, learning how to live and live live as a family and become a family, um, and it, it feels it feels weird hearing that, given that they split them all up for most of the movie. But also, <laughs> I think it, it it does ring true. But it's it's about giving characters uh, realizations, like an, an an emotional journeys, rather than rather than anything hugely different. So it doesn't really, in terms of character arcs, you're not seeing characters go from being one thing to another thing, but you are seeing mm. characters go from viewing the world one way to viewing it very slightly differently. And for me, I enjoy these characters well enough. I enjoy these performances. And I would agree with James. I think this movie is funnier than the first one. Um, I I laughed an, an awful, awful lot. And I think I laughed a lot more at some of the... At some of the side stuff, like the first film was the characters were funny, but this time I think there was just, there was like little visual cues and stuff that I really enjoyed. And some of the stuff that James Gunn was playing with, how he staged scenes and sequences, I found hilarious at times. And we can, yeah, we can talk about the specifics of some of those, there are definitely, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, just one one thing I feel that I, I would like to bring up before we go into spoilers as well is... Um, just the structure of this movie, and I don't know whether this this would um, 
whether either of you would agree with this. I'm particularly interested whether you do, James, given that you are a big Star Trek fan. Uh, but the the other comparison that I felt for this was it felt like a Star Trek episode or a Star Trek or like one of the Star Trek sequel movies. Like the amount of times where, especially original series Star Trek, the 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 team go down to a planet and then they all split off and do their different <laughs> things and they meet some guy and you're like should we trust this guy should we not um and either the twist at the end of the episode is going to be uh, you mistrusted him but you should have been trusted him trusting him all along or you were trusting him and you shouldn't have trusted him because he's an evil shit um and and like we're all... like you're talking about star trek beyond it as well. <laughs> well, well a, yeah. a little bit a like little a, bit yeah i've but not it, seen that comparison made but as soon as you said it i can i instantly saw what you meant so yeah i can it, it feels a bit like a tng episode specifically in that they you know the team goes to a place they have a bunch of conversations, and then at the end, they sort everything out and leave. Yeah, and they, and they come back together, and they've they're, they're slightly changed because of it, but not hugely. Yep. and it's all existed within the same kind of framework as you're used to seeing these characters exist in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's fine, and it's entertaining, and it's good. And yeah, this reminded me much more of Star Trek at that, where whereas the first <laughs> film felt so obviously Star Wars. Yeah, obviously, I think this film is still riffing on Star Wars and riffing on Empire by splitting the team up. I think that that's probably a conscious choice. Um, I think James Gunn is is doing some Star Wars homage here, but just tonally, it felt a little bit more, a little bit more Star Trek. This it's time because of how t- because of how talky it is for me. That's that's what makes it yes. quite Star Trekky. Yeah. Um, okay, well, do, do you think we've done enough spoiler-free stuff there? Yeah, there were there were a couple of things. I, yeah, I, I, I don't know if they'd count as spoilery or non-spoilery, so let's let's play it safe and and call them. I'm eager to talk about the opening action things. sequence, so let's let's yes. get to it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so, listeners, if you uh, if you don't care about being spoiled or you've seen the film already, which I imagine most of you have, uh, you can continue on with us to our next section. Um, if you don't want to be spoiled, check out now. Check back in when you have seen the movie. Um, but now you know that all three of us liked it to varying degrees, which is good news. Um, so what we'll do now is we'll listen to, uh, let's listen to the trailer for the movie and we'll come back and dive into all the spoilery goodness. The fate of the universe lies on your shoulders. Now, whatever you do, don't push this button. Because that will set off the bomb immediately and we'll all be dead. Now repeat back what I just said. I agree. No! No, that's the button that will kill everyone. Try again. I am Groot. Mm-hmm. I am Groot. Uh-huh. I am Groot. No! Showtime, a-holes. Tape, it's you! I have to do everything! You are wasting a lot of time! <laughs> 
That's a really bad sign. Okay, so that was the Guardians uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 trailer, and now we are going to talk in spoilers. Um, James, I know you want to get to the to the opening action <laughs> sequence, but we should really start with the opening flashback sequence, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose. Can, can I just say something about this, which I don't think is something that you would have, have probably been planning to pick up on, but did either of you guys see this in 3D? Yes. No. Because because I saw I saw it in IMAX 3D by mistake. I didn't realize until after I'd booked it, um, and I was like, "Oh, that was quite expensive." And then realized it was IMAX 3D. Um, for I mean, just in a general sense, the 3D in this generally is. I mean, I've not been to see a 3D film for quite a while now, actually, but um, it was generally well done and not very obtrusive. And there were a couple of specific moments very early on. The first of which being the opening shot, where there was some really because of the distance of the shot and the distance of the car and the and the kind of figures and stuff, the 3D had a really interesting feel to it that I've not really seen in a 3D film before, where it almost felt like you were looking at models, like little like um, like little plastic models. Mm. And it was the same when it then cut to all of them on the big platform. The first shot you see of them is from a distance. And I just thought, and it just, it just really, I think going into something that, and maybe we should have said this in the, the non-spoilery section, but just how visually wow a lot of this film is, it kind of started me straight, you know, given that it is also a flashback to 1980s Earth, so it should be quite boring looking, it just immediately gave it this really unreal feel that just set the tone for everything that would follow. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, it's funny, we used to, every time there was a 3D film released, there used to be this big discussion about whether it was filmed in 3D and whether it was retrofitted and how this and this and that had happened. I don't actually know how Marvel are doing their 3D movies anymore. <laughs> I do know that James Gunn has introduced this, like, super ultra-futuristic, like, I think, Red 7 camera, I think. So it's been shot with the kind of, like, cutting-edge camera technology um, that's available. So maybe that has something to do with it, but I honestly don't know whether he shot it in 3D or whether it's whether it's converted after the fact. But I didn't see it in 3D, but I I, I would agree the film looks gorgeous. It's even more kind of like candy coloured than the first one. Like it feels <laughs> you you feel like you you feel like you're swimming in a pick and mix for the entire film. <laughs> like it's a, it's a sugar rush in in the best way. <laughs> but. Just as visually stunning is a young Kurt Russell, right? Because <laughs> first of all, he was a gorgeous yeah. he was a gorgeous man back in the eighties, and this film <laughs> it is like it is like looking at him in Escape from New York or Big Trouble. It's it's I've always said on this podcast all of these movies would benefit from being more like Big Trouble in Little China, and <laughs> there and you this, go. This movie took me literally. <laughs> it's Kurt Russell with the big hair with Laura Haddock in in the car, um, and I I think it it almost doesn't matter what happens in that sequence because you are sat there kind of like mouth agape of like 
oh my god, they're getting better at this de-aging every single time. I was going to say, it's no my... teenage Robert Downey Jr., is it? <laughs> my my main feeling was that I want them to, I want Warner Brothers to immediately buy this technology and use it for a Riverdale 1980s prequel TV series. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, amazing. Um, what did you think when you were watching the pre-credit sequence? Because I, I was getting a little bit uh, shirty pre-release this film because I thought I'd had um, Kurt Russell spoil. <laughs> it was for me. it was killing me to not say to you like you're overreacting. Yeah, well, I think so. Like, was... So, 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 what, what were you, what were you, what was your concern? I've, I've missed this. I'd read a bunch of reviews that, had, like, literally, like three or four different reviews that had all used the word claims I think, in regard to. I think Kurt even Russell I saying, used it in my yeah. review, and I can tell you why I was doing that, and it was because I, I definitely, didn't... I definitely hadn't read yours pre-release, there, James. So, well, yeah, <laughs> surely. But yeah, like the reason I said it was because I didn't want to give away whether he was or wasn't, because I felt it was right. sufficiently ambiguous that I would say that he claims to be it so that people reading the review didn't go, oh, you just blew whether he was or wasn't. So, so I think I, that's when, what people were doing, whereas you, when were, I read, you were reading it as giving away that he wasn't, weren't you? Well, I thought I was A, reading away, giving away that he wasn't, and B, reading, giving away that he was actually the villain of the film. Like, it felt it felt like a twofold thing to me. And so I went into the film fully expecting Kurt Russell to be the villain, saw him planting that plant, and I was like, ah, uh, I don't trust this guy. <laughs> but I think I think in the end, it didn't end up ruining any of the film for me, even, even if it had been the other way around. Because I just basically went into the film not really trusting that character, but from the moment they encounter him, Peter doesn't trust him. And even when Peter's one round, then Gamora doesn't trust him. So mm-hmm. um, it really, there's, it's like, that's another thing that reminded me of Star Trek, you know, the like, do we trust this evil shit? <laughs> oh no, he, he is an evil shit. Like, <laughs> so that was, <laughs> it, it, it kind of it kind of didn't bother me, but yeah, I was I was convinced. Like, why are all these people writing this word in their reviews? Why are they doing it? <laughs> uh, but yeah, ulti- ultimately, it didn't matter. Um, interestingly, um, James Gunn said that they cut part of that flashback sequence that was going to be with like uh, Granddaddy Quill and um, Meredith's dad, who we saw in the first film, and uh, I forget the name of the actor, but he's that guy from all those things. Um, and <laughs> apparently it was it was going to be a scene that was filled with as many Easter eggs as the collector sequence in um wow in in the first film and obviously we know as well they cut the they cut the um uh, uh what's his name Nathan Fillion. Nathan, Nathan Fillion they cut the yeah. Nathan Fillion sequence um which was going to be him as an actor as Wonder Man and there was another sequence that well that Nathan Fillion tweeted something of him in kind of like alien makeup again but I guess that could have been him in one of his movies. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but so it looks like it, it looks like we we got a lot of Easter eggs withheld from us there. But my God, could you imagine this film with more, with more Easter eggs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this film, yeah. but more self congratulatory. <laughs> Hard to imagine. No, it, um, exactly. Okay, so James, let's let's go to present present day stuff yes we, we are we are back in space we are diving straight back into um life with the team and we're getting mr blue sky and dancing baby Groot. okay so what i want to say about this is for me this was the high point of the film and i kind of wish they'd saved it until last because <laughs> i'm so bored of seeing action sequences that are just like 
lots of people flying around and stuff blowing up. And I think if they'd left an action sequence like this till very last, it would have kind of Doctor Strange style been a really nice way to undercut the usual crap you get at the end of a superhero film. Yeah, I, th- I think I think there are sort of there, there are two things that really um, stand out for me with this. The first one is um, is that I already knew that Mister Blue Sky was going to be on the soundtrack, mm-hmm. and um, the thing about Mister Blue Sky is that it's I love it. It's a great record. It's been used in so many things, and I quite strongly associate it with uh, a Doctor Who episode. But there's lots of other things. <laughs> oh, that it's, popped it, up. it's always eternal um, sunshine. For I me. closely associate it with an Andrew yeah, Collins Radio Four sitcom. <laughs> um, that's the thing. It's like the, <laughs> um, and so firstly, the fact that I, I I expected to be annoyed when Mr. Blue Sky turned up in the film, even though I loved the record. So the fact that it was that sequence. It just didn't matter because it was so perfectly pitched. The other thing is, I think, and I have, I have already seen somebody uh, say that they didn't like, they just felt, and what I was talking before about the film potentially coming off as quite smug, and it's like, oh, here's Dancing Baby Groot, because you loved Dancing Baby Groot for those 10 seconds at the end of the first <laughs> film, so here's three minutes of it. Um, but it doesn't matter because what you've got is just a, an absolutely brilliant piece of staging yeah. and just the way that that action is framed in the background mm-hmm. is and and the way that it's funny every single time one of the other characters <laughs> comes into shot or is or is or you get a glimpse of what's going on it's just yeah it's just i mean i do kind of agree with you james that it it, it would have been great to have a sequence like that at the end of the film like, well, like a surprising my main, sequence like yeah, that like my main film, complaint but... is it was so good that nothing none of the other yeah, action lived a... up to it even remotely like this was it was like inventive and original and it's like if you've got that in you save it for when it really matters <laughs> I, I do agree with that but i also think it it set the mood for the film so well. It just puts you in much the, in the same way as the opening credit sequence yeah. of the first one. And obviously, again, this is this film going. Okay, we know that everybody loved the opening credits of the first film. We have to do <laughs> the, something. The to title, try and match the title drop on this was almost probably better than the yeah. first. In fact, yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah, even down to doing that. Yeah, that freeze frame title drop. But you know, it's. It, um, I I think. I think the film needed that there because it it just sets that mood and it puts you in that good mood for the rest of the film. It just would have been nice if there was something like it as a counterpoint later on. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm glad that that's there at the start of the film. In the same way as, you know, the first film arguably doesn't get any better than that opening sequence, but it doesn't mean you don't love the rest of it. It's just that, you know. Yeah. I think you I think you're right about it really setting the tone for the movie. Um uh, again, another reference to one of our previous podcasts, Andrew Ellard, but he, he does, we, we spoke about this in the podcast, does t- these tweet notes about, about films and he did them for the first Guardians of the Galaxy. And he makes a great point about how in the, f- in the first film, it's all about frogs. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and it's, it's, and it's amazing. It's sort of, it's in the, in the, in the flashback scene, you see that a young Peter has been in a fight because he was, he saw a defenseless frog being hit with a stick and he defended it. And then in the next scene, you see him kicking these space frogs around during I've the opening I've stolen that point so many times and it's, it's, <laughs> when talking it's, about that film. It's such a, it's such a great point. Um, and it's something that like, um, I didn't pick up on watching it for the first time. And then Andrew wrote it and I was like, yes, absolutely genius. Um, and that sets the tone for the film in that here's this space asshole who is going to become less of an asshole during the course of the film. Um, 
And I thought that this was just in a, in a, in essentially doing the same kind of scene, which is this big, like, we're, we're exploring a, a part of this galaxy with the characters we know. And there's a, there's a fun pop song, fun seventies pop song going on in the background. Um, but this time it's little baby group dancing around and we can see that our guys that we know are a team in the background and they've still, got the same weird character flaws there's they're, they're all that they're they're a team but they're not quite working as a team yet and they're not they've not quite acknowledged what each of them means to each other but it's all happening in the background of I, ba- da- dancing baby group happening um and it's i just thought it was a, it was a lovely tone setter for the film i mean that's there's an interesting point there about star lord in this movie which is one of the ways i think this film is weaker is that star lord's character is also a bit weaker because in the first he's like this kind of slacker guy and he like he's learning to care whereas in this one he's basically he, he just cares and like he does the right thing and he is fine like he hmm. there's well, no all, there's no real ambiguity he, he there is, he is arguably the least interesting aspect yeah exactly of the, yeah, he's also he's also the guy the film has built around so that that is one of the ways in which i found it weaker than the first he is, he is, and he isn't because we've got all these subplots. It didn't, I, it never really felt to me like the film was built around any character in particular because the plot, maybe Yondu. <laughs> well, the, yeah, the, the plot is pretty incidental in terms of the, in terms of the, the ego stuff and the, the daddy issues. It really is kind of like something that allows the movie to spin its wheels for an hour and a half before it kicks into the big action set pieces that close the film. And during the time that we're spinning our wheels, we are going off with all these different characters and we're exploring these different familial relations, uh, these different ways that these characters uh, interact with the idea of family and the way that they push or pull away from that idea. I mean, Peter at the the centre of it basically is just a guy who has daddy issues, who doesn't want to trust his father figures, but desperately wants one. Um and yeah, it's it's not that interesting in relation to some of the other characters, I don't think. Um but I, I don't I don't really think it needs to be because because you've got the whole team there this time. Um and I think some of the some of the other stuff is more interesting. And like the fact that Yondu ends up packing the massive emotional punch in this movie is <laughs> is testament to that. But I also I thought it was interesting to go back to that first scene in that they do kind of already resemble a family at the start of it, like because Gru is literally a baby and you see kind of like Gamora looking out for all of them. It reminded me the way that you guys talk about Fantastic Four all the time, that like Drax <laughs> is basically, Drax is the thing. We got we got a baby Gru added into things and, and like Peter and Gamora are having to be the mum and dad of the group and Rocket's kind of like the, you know, the, the cocksure Johnny. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's yeah, it felt it felt fantastic for us that they were already in this. They're already in this family unit, but they're mm. not. But they're not quite appreciating it, and that's what I mean about the film not really doing a huge amount in terms of taking the characters from one place to another. All it does is slightly alter their <laughs> their understanding of their situation and their yeah, appreciation kind of, of each other. Nudges them rather than pushes them. Hmm. Um, the other thing I appreciated after that opening sequence was, yes, this opening sequence is like five minutes of Baby Groot. 
Um, and I think one of the fears for this film was that it was going to go all in on Baby Groot and that it was going to be overwhelming and that people were going to come away hating this little shit that they thought they were going to love. You know, it'd be like the thing, oh, you like Baby Groot. God, you're so lame. <laughs> Jaja. Um, yeah. <laughs> but Baby Groot, I think, is is used sparingly and well. And they don't really try yeah. and try and force him into any of the any of the plot beats or any of the any of that family stuff because he is just the baby he's the one that all of them like care for and are looking out for um i i wasn't anticipating that like he would have no role in in the action like i i assumed that even as baby grew he would still be grew and would still be fighting and stuff and i think the fact that they didn't go that way and actually instead he's just this little baby creature who they're constantly having to keep an eye on worked so much better like if he was just there being grootish um all the way through it wouldn't have worked as well but i think they were able to use him sparingly because essentially they can push him into the background whenever the action's happening unless they want to make a joke around him in the middle of the action yeah <laughs> and there are well, a lot so of those so, as well <laughs> yeah lots of little group jokes and then uh, aside from the aside from the opening sequence just one big comedic sequence with him in the middle which <laughs> It it just I think it's it's one of those you know like it goes on long enough that it's like it's funny has it stopped being funny oh no now it's funny again and I mean the point at which he brings back the toe is I think the moment where you're just like okay the, that might have been the the moment where the movie peaked for me I, I thought, it was absolutely genius um so yeah I would applaud James Gunn for not overly using uh, Baby Group. Although I, I do think, unfortunately, that like reducing the role of Groot did also mean reducing the role of Rocket. And given that Rocket is my favourite, I mean, it doesn't harm the film because there's so much great stuff going on in the film. It doesn't matter as much. But I did come out of it slightly thinking that wasn't as much a Rocket film as the first one I mean, was. <laughs> again, I think in the first film, Rocket, like you got a lot of good emotional beats with Rocket, which weren't, you weren't necessarily expecting. Like, obviously, the jokes were mm. funny. But also, I think people came out of Guardians being like, I already felt for that raccoon guy. Whereas in this one, like, yeah. there's maybe one or two moments, but there's certainly not the not the density of of like emotional beats for Rocket. And that again, that's one one of the ways in which this film is slightly worse than the first. Rocket definitely pops once he gets to hang out with Yondu at the end. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And again, it's hammered on the head, but like the fact that they're essentially the same character is. Uh, 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 you know, it's it's a nice little touch if you haven't realised it by the time that Yondu is literally saying it out loud. <laughs> when Yondu's, when Yondu's yeah. going, and I push people away, and I've got little ears, and my face looks like a panda. <laughs> and <you're> like, <laughs> he might as well have been saying that by the end of that. <laughs> Don't I mean, you get it? <laughs> like, that's, that's the one bit in the film that kind of comes close to matching the first, and it's like, I just kind of think... The bit at the end of the first film where he's like cradling the sticks of Groot, mm. like the shattered sticks, like you really feel for him in that moment. And in this one, you kind of, you're just laughing at him for the most I part. I don't know. Like I, I felt for him As, when he Aside was, from that Yondu sequence. I felt for him when he was deciding to leave Quill behind at the end. And like the fact that he wasn't, that when, you know, wasn't willing to lose another member of his team that that he did care for them and that he acknowledged that he was a bit of an asshole, but he was he was an asshole because 
he was kind of scared of being treated the way he was before and of being driven away by these guys and not wanting to allow himself to emotionally invest in this family he'd found himself yeah, a part of. Yeah, I don't know. I think I just didn't get there with him in, in this one. I think it's just that there's there's so much else going on and there's so many other characters who are getting, I think, better emotional beats <laughs> that yeah, he's I mean I'd say it's not it's not like this it's not like there's a moment in the film where I was like, Oh, Rocket Raccoon's being really badly handled in this. It was more kind of afterwards. I was a bit, Oh, is that it? Is that all we get of him? And as I say, I don't think it matters too much because I think there was enough other stuff and you know, the 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 richness of the, the supporting cast and characters meant that, you know, you had people like I still don't know the name of James Gunn's character, but him Sean Gunn. Um obviously the stuff with Yondu. So do you mean um, do you mean um Sean sorry Sean? Sean, Sean, Sean Gunn, yeah, Craig, Sean Gunn. Right? Um, Craglin, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there was enough other stuff going on that it didn't matter so much. It's just that you know, I mean, it's weird because we, we haven't done the first film yet, so we haven't gone into our feelings in detail about the first film. But um, as I say, Rocket is the thing that I really loved from the first film, so it's a shame that to me he's a bit more of a supporting character in this one than. <laughs> Than as much one of the leads, I wonder whether but... everyone kind of is though, because in the first film the entire team's together from like twenty minutes into the movie until the very end, and when one's on screen, usually the other four are also on screen. And so this <laughs> this time, because they're split up, we kind of get smaller sections with each of them. So mm. it didn't. It's it is impressive that it juggles that many characters. Just now that we think about it, now we actually talk about it, like it's almost you could almost take for granted, like how many characters it's having to fit in and do something with and not collapsing under the weight of them. Yeah, I mean, so we so we get... In, in terms of the subplots, we get the Peter and Ego stuff. And obviously Gamora's kind of involved with that, but then at one point she then spins off into a sub-subplot with Nebula. Um, again, Drax is around, but Drax is mostly with Mantis. Um, Rocket and Gru are with Nebula until they're not, and then they're with Yondu. Um um, and so we, all of those things kind of seem to happen separately from one another. Um, and it's only really at the end, all of the characters come together, but they don't really come together in any kind of like, um, weaving together the plots way. It's just, oh, and, and now they're all in the same place and they're all fighting the same bad guy. Um, it works though. I don't, I don't know why, but for me, for me, it does work. <laughs> it's like I say, there's not, there's not an awful lot of depth, and it's, it, that's the, the film is hitting the same, the same, I think, theme with every single character. Because if it didn't, the movie would be a complete mess. It has to be doing the same stuff. It's like here's a fun little side adventure that every character's having, but emotionally, what's going on is the same for all of them. It I, just, it just, yeah. So it gives it that consistency. It just relates think... to each of them in a in a in a slightly different way. So with with Peter, it's daddy issues. With um with uh, Drax, it's the kind of loss of a previous family before he's found this one and with nebula and gamora it's actual family members who have become estranged and so it's you know that they're all dealing with the with different things but within the same wheelhouse well yeah i was gonna say i think the fact that the plots are all quite similar and sort of equally shallow sort of makes makes the film work in the sense that you don't get like no one feels sidelined because they're all getting equal weight, but no one really, no one, no one really feels like they're getting to mine anything particularly complex. Or... Yeah, yeah, no one's really standing out or like delivering any anything revelatory. It's all sort of 
all flowing in the same direction, I guess. Yeah. Um, shall, shall we go back um, to some of the stuff from earlier in the film that we, we haven't touched on yet? So um, when Yondu comes into the story, we see him on this kind of... Um, well, what's the best way of describing it? Like a brothel planet with like... A, <laughs> yeah, an- basically. And Android characters... He's basically on on Mimas from the Red Dwarf novels. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's that's a reference to all of all, all of our I was audience. Say. <laughs> I'm going to be straight there with you, um, Seb. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so he's he's on this on this weird uh, yeah brothel planet where Howard the Duck is also hanging out for his second cameo. Um, I don't like the Marvel Cinematic Universe version of Howard the Duck. You guys doesn't doesn't work for me. <laughs> Yeah, he's Seth Green, so anything Seth Green does, I'm there for. Okay, fine. Okay, we'll let we'll let him off then. Um, but yeah, they're they're, <laughs> they're on this planet, and this is kind of where we start to dig into the the whole the the basic the mystery element of the plot, which is whether we're going to trust Ego and we're going to delve down into Peter Quill's origin story, and the, that's kind of going to be doled out like one tiny revelation at a time. Um, and and it starts off with Yondu. So we knew that Yondu had, from the end of the first movie had been hired to pick up Peter, but we didn't know by who. Well, we knew by his dad, but we didn't know who his dad was. Uh, and we didn't know why Yondu had kept him or any of that stuff. And so that is when Sylvester Stallone comes into things as the head of another um, faction of Ravagers. And he is uh, Stakar. He is Starhawk, one of the original members of the... Guardians of the Galaxy in the comics, James, which I didn't want to mention when, <laughs> before we got into our spoiler section. Um, and we we see some of the other members of that original Guardians of the Galaxy team in, in the movie as well. Um, is is this something that's like a, an awesome moment for comic book geeks or is it just kind of, or, or is it more awesome that it's Sylvester Stallone and it's another kind of 70s, 80s icon being dragged into this franchise? I mean, I think the fraction of people who will have known that that was a, an existing <laughs> character even is so tiny. Like I, I, mean, I didn't I was... know until I looked up the name, his name on the internet and it was like Stakar Ogard, AKA Starhawk. I was like, Oh, Starhawk. I know Starhawk, but I didn't recognize any of the others until I came home and Googled them. Like, <laughs> and I'm a fairly big yeah, Marvel I... fan. Like I would say, I know probably one or two other people who would have known that in advance. I think in the film, it's just a, oh, hey, it's Sylvester Stallone moment. And I think the moment at the end is more, because I, I'd, I'd heard that Sylvester Stallone was in this, but I think I'd, the first time I heard mention of Sylvester Stallone potentially being in this was an April Fool's Day rumor that he was going to be Galactus or something. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, oh, it's a joke. Sylvester Stallone's going to be playing Galactus and Galactus. I didn't realize that he was actually genuinely in this <laughs> film until I saw his name in the credits. So when he turned up and he had that scene, it was like, oh, it's great. Oh, Sylvester Stallone was in this. That's exactly the kind of thing you want to see Sylvester Stallone doing. Um, when he turns up at the end, it's like, oh, wow, they're actually setting up that Sylvester Stallone's going to be a major character in the third film. I'm really on board with that. Now then... I don't think he is going to be that, right? I think he I think will, will I think be as well. That is them setting up the plot of the third. Yeah, one. I think um, I think they're saying basically the Ravagers will be a sort of more united force in the galaxy, and he'll be fulfilling essentially Yondu's role in the plot. Right. Okay. Mm. And I and I think as far as them being the original, uh, you know, several of them being 
the original Guardians. That's an Easter egg. Now it's not one that, as of, as we already said at the start, like I'm I've got no interest in the original 1960s <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy team. But just as a nice touch, I like the idea that that's how they're going to use those characters and work that mm-hmm. in. Um, in much the same way as James expressed surprise when I was excited by uh, <laughs> what one of the other post-credits bits was. because And I would agree that I'm not excited by that character. And anyone who's heard my appearance on our friend podcast, The Fantastic Cast, will know just how unexcited I am by that <laughs> character. But it's the fact that they, they're they doing it is what excites me. It's like I, I don't have to love the original character to go, oh, wow, they're actually pulling in that concept as well. Mm. Um I'm talking about Adam Warlock, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so um, some some kind of uh, behind the scenes stuff. On a previous podcast, I had read a rumor online that Stallone was going to be playing Starhawk, and I brought it up in a previous podcast. And then Seb, you said, "Oh, I saw that April Fool's thing," and I was like, oh, "I'll cut I'll cut that from the <laughs> podcast." I obviously read an April Fool's article by mistake, <laughs> and it turned out so. I then assumed that he wasn't playing Starhawk, and then got into the film, and he was. And I was like, "What? What's happened here?" Um, <laughs> the other thing, the Adam Warlock thing. Um, James Gunn has said in interviews that originally Adam Warlock was going to be a character in this movie. He was in the first uh, draft of the script and basically he decided to cut him because he felt that it was kind of like taking attention away from some of the other characters and that he wasn't able to serve the other characters as best he could and like it was it was a case of does he want to dial back on the amount of mantis he uses he doesn't really and that he could save adam warlock for the next film so that's (laughs) that's the one thing that well i wonder whether that the adam warlock thing is being specifically set up as a let's do Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 with Adam Warlock or whether we're going to be seeing him earlier in Infinity War, given that I mean, that's, in the that's comics the kind of thing, he's pretty major, yeah. right? In the comics, he's kind of Thanos' nemesis, like he's... Or one of Thanos' nemesis, nemeses. Um, Nemesai? He, <laughs> nemeses. There's a Buffy reference, nemeses. Okay. Nemesata. Um, but there's a... Yeah, like... He his role is to be the protector of the Infinity Gems, so he's collecting them for benevolent purposes, and Thanos is collecting them for malevolent purposes, and everyone else is sort of caught in the middle. The problem with that is that Adam Warlock is dull as fuck. <laughs> is he? Is he just like very earnest golden space guy? Yeah, that, that's what he like, looks he like. He is. He is full prog rock like album cover guy but that's as deep as he goes he will fit like he's... very well into this universe then because this film felt like it was set on planets <laughs> that had been literally ripped <laughs> off the front of prog rock albums like that yeah but like that's that's the thing he's got no personality that's got any hook he's just like he he exists to do this thing and anyone who gets in his way can like sol off as far as he cares now in this film he's set up as kind of like the um he, as if he's going to be like kind of getting revenge on the guardians for what he does to them. I, I'm not sure what the golden race are called in this film. Uh, the, the sovereign. The, the sovereign. sovereign. Yes. Um, that he's going to be like the, um, he's going to be getting revenge on the guardians on their behalf in, in the next film. So that could be his single purpose, but I guess if they want to use him elsewhere or, or do something different with him. But again, I mean, we've thing, seen, well, we've seen okay, how much just, the Marvel films have also changed the chari- the personalities of characters pretty drastically before. He doesn't have to be anything like he is. In I mean, I've got I've got an important point to make here, actually, which is that in the comics, he's the guy who's got the one Infinity Gem we haven't seen so far, which is the Soul Gem. 
which was actually the first Infinity Stone, and it's the one that's got a nice garden inside where you can live. <laughs> I'm still convinced that that is what uh, we're going to see in Thor Ragnarok, and that um, Hela is going to be in possession of that one. Yeah, I th- I kind of think they're going to save that for Infinity War, and possibly Adam Warlock will have been created using it. Maybe. Like I, yeah, I'll be interested if it turns up in Ragnarok. Fair enough, but if it doesn't, I would put money on Adam Warlock having it in Infinity War. Hmm. Um, we should talk though about Aisha and the Sovereign, um, because that was one of the. Uh, big delights for me in this film. I thought Elizabeth Debicki's performance was perhaps the best <laughs> in the entire film. Um, I thought she was. Uh, I thought she was hilarious. I thought the design of the characters was wonderful. I thought the way that they made their big action sequence into an arcade game was because um, <laughs> that's the thing that I can't. Uh, the, the criticism of the film that I can't get on with is that the action isn't imaginative because the first action sequence happens in the background while Baby Groot mm-hmm. is dancing. The second one is a bunch of characters playing an arcade game coming coming chasing down our characters who are having a squabble of, over who gets to. F- fly their airplane or their spaceship and then i thought there was i thought there was so many fun visual little touches in the last big action sequence on inside ego it felt like it started off like star tours you know the you know the disneyland ride (laughs) like with literally kurt russell's kind of uh like weird cg half skeleton nervous system body showing up in front of them and then them driving through it and like swerving and and us watching it in pov it reminded me of a theme park ride and of like an 80s theme park ride it it felt absolutely (laughs) um, perfect um, to me that like kurt russell like skeleton thing that was the bit where i was like oh yeah this film was made by james gunn like the b-movie guy yeah um <laughs> like, i i enjoyed it it, yeah, reminded, it was very it reminded me at of odds with the rest of the tone it reminded me of early like cg like ca- early cg characters like in the terminator or like in uh is it the skeleton in young sherlock holmes the the very first one <laughs> like it, it it was that it was that kind of level of effects for me and like i said the star tours was something that i kept being reminded of during that action scene sequence um and i loved it and i thought well well, like it was james gunn acknowledging that these action sequences were kind of a necessary evil but that he could have some fun in them so he can put pac-man into the middle of it in in what's coming off the back of a big a real big emotional moment when the chain comes (laughs) back in and we see all those flashbacks for peter uh which was I do I do kind of wish it hadn't been Pac-Man though. I think just like af- after Pixels um, <laughs> and with and this yeah. is with the with with the thing with them playing the game this is a, a point I wanted to bring up but this is what I wasn't sure whether to bring up in in the non-spoilery chat but it, it probably works better if we can talk about a few specifics. So a comment that I saw from uh, a friend and and one time appearance on the podcast uh, Harry Jenkinson um who said that he thought this is Harry who likes Thor the Dark World, <laughs> by the way. Um, who said he thinks that the the Guardians films are are basically Ready Player One, but for people who actually enjoyed school. <laughs> um, and I was trying to figure out because I literally just recently um, tried to start reading Ready Player One, <laughs> like like in the last week. Um, I got through about one and a half mm. chapters, and I genuinely think it's one of the most hatefully awful things <laughs> I've ever read in my life. Like, really, really, I can't. I don't. I don't want to go into a rant about exactly why I hate it and why I think it's reprehensible, but I do. But and, you've, but you've um, read a chapter. 
it, 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 it's enough to get a sense of how bad the world building is and how bad its approach to everything uh, was, Seb, is. Give, give, I, I, uh, just to stand up for Ready Player One, I've listened to the audiobook of Ready Player One, and I don't love it. I think I actually think it's a well constructed, like competently written narrative. Um, it is. It, m- it must get more competent after the first chapter then because the first chapter is woefully incompetent it's, ju- it's just written. it's just a lot it's just a lot of nerd nonsense of like this is a guy who knows every word to the movie war games and knows this obscure co- this well it's 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 but not even the, obscure thing, stuff it's like, it's like but- very mainstream stuff that is known in a level of detail that even nerds would be embarrassed of, I think. But the the, the, <laughs> the reason the reason why I don't like the the you know I like referencing into the things I love spaced you know. But the uh, the reason that I think Ready Player One is it's like it's this horrible thing of of geekness for geekness's sake and of like the reason why the main character in Ready Player One knows and loves all this stuff from the eighties is solely because somebody else yeah. loved all of that stuff and then said you need to learn about all of this stuff so that you can uh, inherit a massive fortune yeah. Yeah. basically so he's only obsessed with the eighties because it's something that somebody else liked and and um, and I think that's the difference at least with Guardians now admittedly with Guardians the reason that Peter loves all the sixties and seventies pop music is because it's what his mum liked but it's what his mum shared with him and it's what he grew up with and he grew up in the 1980s himself so the fact that his frame of reference is 1980s firstly it's because he grew up there also the the second point is that it's where his frame of reference stops he's not obsessed with earth's past because like you know he grew up and loved it and then he's lived through the 90s and 2000s and decided that the 80s is best he left earth in the mid 1980s so his frame of reference for earth culture stops at that yeah he would have so when you get stuff like (laughs) (laughs) so when you get stuff like the you know the and i I did kind of wonder i was like well you know what's what's the point of having the um i've forgotten their name um uh, you know flying these ships as a video game other than oh because it's quite a fun and cool thing but i think there is a justification that the film has this 80s aesthetic that is rooted in the character and his age and his background and that's basically why while i think if you don't like 80s stuff i think the extent to which they go all in on it in this film especially by the time you get to the closing credits i think that could start to grate on you but i think at least there is a reason for it whereas in ready player one the only reason is because that's what the author likes and so the author has decided i mean you did in in saying that you kind of highlighted i thought the pac-man thing was maybe a bit much and it was the one point in the film where i was like the the, the pac-man one i thought was a bit much and i think it's partly because it's been done and it's been well it's more lately Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Again, it's more because they're like, what they're essentially saying there is Peter Quill like looked into a subconscious and pulled out a thing that he hadn't a computer game he hadn't played for 25 years and that that mm. was his big choice and like yeah. there's no indication in the rest of the films that he's got any interest in the, arcade gaming or anything and so it, there is, it does there feel is a, a bit pa- like there is a pac-man reference earlier i mean he in the mentions yeah. pac-man earlier but even so yeah it just there, there is a chekhov's pac-man <laughs> chekhov's pac-man that's going on the chekhov's list I don't, most of it, most of it seems fine to me, and I, I think because like they are little touches in the movie, they're not what the movie's about. The movie isn't about the eighties. The movie is about a character who comes from that era, and that's what he kind of references back to. And so when I don't know when when the Hasselhoff thing happened, I could have done without actually seeing Hasselhoff um, personally. But I thought <laughs> that, I thought the Knight Rider stuff was fun in the same way that the Footloose reference in the first movie was fun. Yeah. Um, mm. Oh, I just, I just want to say quickly: the best reference in this film, Mary Poppins. Yes, yes. I was crying, <laughs> crying with laughter. Is, is is this Mary Poppins? Is he a cool guy? Is that what uh, Yondu says? Yeah, and then he, I'm, I'm Mary is he Poppins. Cool? Yeah, he's cool. I'm Mary Poppins. <laughs> Amazing. I think I, I mean, I, I think if Elizabeth Debicki steals the first act of this movie, um, Michael Rucker steals the third act. Um, he he really he, i think he really does bring emotional resonance in a way that i was i was convinced he was going to die from the moment they went down I was the just about to say i was just about to say where's the point in the film where you knew he was going to die because yeah it's it's around about then isn't it it's like oh okay yeah they're going to kill him off because yeah i was just sense. i was I, in fact i thought that like when we seen the sequence where Ego is trapping them all, kind of in the in the soil of the planet. Yes, I when I think yes, I think Yondu's gonna... the first one that it happens to, and I thought he was going to die then, but then everyone gets pulled in, yeah. and you're like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> um, in fact, yeah. So that that was a kind of quite that was the point where I thought he was going to die. So when he didn't die, then I thought, oh, he's not going to die from having come down onto the planet after all, and then he does. So it's a yeah, nice bit of double. <laughs> I think it's nice that because the first film pulled back from doing a moment like that and it is a problem that these films often have generally of oh nobody really dies in them um so i think i think this needed that because the first film had a couple of moments where it looked like someone might obviously you've got the bit with quill going into space to rescue gamon you know they're not going to kill him at that point so to mirror that with that being the way that yondu dies here and also obviously you've got the moment with groot at the end of the first film where you've got this really nice emotional moment but actually all that happens is groot gets reborn as baby groot so you I don't even like, really there is still a lot existential it's point not really the same. like is this groot or is this groot's son because james gunner said he doesn't have the memories of the original groot oh really because yeah. in the comics ah uh, see in the comics groot can be reduced down to a splinter and regrow from the splinter so i've always just taken it that it is groot I, yeah i mean I, i'm not I, i've I'm not never sure it interpreted matters. it that he's not the original uh, yeah i'm not uh, sure it matters in the context of this film but the authorial voice on it is that 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 okay. is not a guy with the original memories of groot i don't think it matters in this mm. film either i think it'll probably matter more <laughs> in a in a sequel 
because mm-hmm. uh, to to go into one of the post credit sequences, we see teen <laughs> we see teenage group. Um, <laughs> please let us not spend a film with teenage group. <laughs> I I think no, I, that I, was just I, them I saying he's the... going to grow up. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I think that was their way of saying we're not sticking with baby group for the next film. By the time you next see him, he'll yes. be fully grown Groot again, which is absolutely the right. Yeah. Way. And I think and I think he'll be a different version of fully grown Groot as well. I don't think he'll be like the one that we saw in the first film. I think he'll be mm. uh, in in some way visually different and different as a character as well. Yeah, probably. I mean this this film was specifically set in twenty four which is interesting because it's the first like normally all the mcu films kind of come out sort of in real time in relation to each other so mm. like we're getting to a point where tony stark has been iron man for sort of 10 years now yeah that that is interesting because like the timelines are gonna have to come into play do you think do you think that is for a specific reason in that they don't want the guardians to have been together for two or three years in terms of the, in terms of their yeah, dynamic, think, or do you think it's that they don't want to let the audience know what's been happening in Cosmic Marvel for the last two or three years because we're going to find that out next year? I mean, I think it's maybe a bit of both. Yeah, like I think they. I think I think for this film, the main reason is though that it's the, the what this film is doing makes more sense if they haven't still haven't been together for very yeah. long. Definitely. Yeah. I mean. I, not least because if if they'd still been being the Guardians of the Galaxy for two or three years, then the Golden People, whose names I've yet Sovereign, forgotten, Sovereign. Um, Sovereign, would have less got away with because the, there's the whole thing of like you know the re- the reason why Yondu. Well, it's not really the reason why because actually we understand later the reason why is because he sees Quill as his son. But the reason the reason that Yondu gives for not going after the Guardians is uh, because everybody knows that they're heroes and they won't like us if we kill them. Um, and I think that would be, I think the Sovereign's attitude is, well, that doesn't matter to us. But I think if the Guardians had been around even longer being heroic and saving people, it would be more of an issue because <laughs> it would be more like declaring war on everybody else. <laughs> yeah, no. And it was, it was great. I mean, and as well, you should, I was thinking when it happened, I was like, how did I not see that coming from the very first scene when Sylvester Stallone says, <laughs> The da 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 will not yeah. be at your funeral. And oh, sorry. <laughs> 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 it's very hard um, to understand also i mean af- after that um obviously the the opening um he gets what is the other best action sequence in the film which is again the film being really pleased with itself at what it's doing but it's doing it so slickly and confidently and enjoyably that um you can't help but just you know with it. <laughs> sit back and enjoy it and applaud it <laughs> When it, when, when it, I mean, obviously, uh, if anyone hasn't figured it out, I'm talking about the bit with him on the ship with his spear thingy. And it's when it, it's when it pans to the overhead shot of it just whizzing around, like the, looking down at the rooms from above. It's just like, yeah. Nice that thing one. is overpowered. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the point, isn't it? Is that he got, he got the new fin that's the experimental fin that I presume gives him more power over it, I think is the. Was that not the idea? I, I think they just wanted him to look a bit more comic booky. Yeah, so I read the reason that he didn't wear that in the first film. It was in an interview with um, Screen Crush. Uh, the reason he didn't wear it in the first film was that it was banging against the like ceiling in some sets, and so they took the fin <laughs> they took the fin off because they'd already bi- they'd already built the sets, and then realised that Yondu with a fin wouldn't be able to operate in those sets. Uh, <laughs> Which is which is great, and so they were just like, yeah, we we wanted a reason to actually give him it back in the sequel. 
Okay. Um, well, shall we, shall we go through as, as some of, we've addressed some of them already, but these various subplots that are going on in the film. Um, I think an obvious one to start with is Drax and Mantis, because we haven't really talked about those characters, um, an awful lot. Um, and Mantis is obviously a new character. Um, so how did, how did you guys think that Mantis worked? I, I thought she was, was generally pretty successful and a good yeah, comedic yeah. foil for Drax. Like that's, like I've said before, the thing that I look for in these films is just make me laugh and she made me laugh. So like admittedly character development, yeah. not really there, like quite thin background, but funny. And that's enough. Can I ask you guys a question? Is she supposed to be one of the children of Ego? No, I don't think so, no. Because obviously Ego's been going around collecting all these different children that he's impregnated, different women of different species. No, around well, she, she Actually, com- there's nothing that sa- she says that he found yeah. her, but yeah, we don't know. I mean, she calls, we don't know she either calls, way. There's nothing that says that she, she calls him her master rather than father. Yeah. No, but the point is is that she could be, but she might not know. She could be. Is that not? I was just wondering. She if, could if, be Peter's sister, basically, is what I was thinking. Yeah, but I, I think if she is, I think she doesn't know. But there's, I don't think there's anything in the film that would outright say that she can't be. Once we know that he has gone round father that, and I think children. that sits within the realm of Fanon. Possibly, <laughs> possibly. I just, I could, I didn't know whether I'd missed something or whether like she is specifically confirmed or not confirmed. Yeah, there's no, way. there's no implication that she is yeah. certainly. Okay. And the fact that she's still alive probably leans on the suggestion that she's not. Um, (laughs) There is a running gag in this film, and I wonder what you guys think about it, about Drax finding Mantis ugly. And now in the first film, there were various people that called out the movie for its uh, attitude towards women. Uh, There's Peter's use of the word bitch at the end. There is Drax's repeated calling Gamora a whore. Uh, there's the general lack of uh, female characters with a huge amount of agency in the first film that I think James Gunn kind of, in a, in a good way, held his hands up to and said, um, I'm going to make sure that my female characters have more to do and that there's more of them in the sequel and that, you know, that, that any of that kind of stuff's not going to be there. Um, and so I thought this was the equivalent of Drax calling Gamora a whore, which was finding Mantis ugly. Um, but I, I don't know about you guys. I felt like it tread on just the right side of the line that you, you, you could interpret it negatively if you want to, but because the joke this time is bedded in the fact that he's, he, he I think it almost, the film has to make it clear that Drax is not attracted to her because he sees her as kind of a surrogate daughter. Um, and mm. the, the, and then the joke is funny because he finds her ugly, but she's quite clearly not. And I think they, Dave Bautista's comic delivery is so good that, I mean, I didn't even really pick up on the stuff the first time until it was drawn, until my attention was drawn to it. And then I went, oh yeah, that's a fair criticism. I'm wondering wondering whether this film deserves the same criticism or not, basically. I think like my reading of him telling her she was unattractive was that he was like intentionally being over the top and lying about it because he thought she was like that is kind of mitigated by the sort of surrogate daughter ending of that thread. Hmm. 
but I felt like it was Drax sort of learning to not be so literal, but sort of overriding it. I mean, that was my interpretation. Like when he was he was talking about his wife and family and you know, they were having these moments where they sort of emotionally connected with one another, but neither of them was really smart enough to notice it. Yeah. Like, it wouldn't surprise me if Mantis was Drax's love interest in the next film. So. Oh, really? Yeah. I would be stunned if that happens. I, I really I really thought <laughs> well, that... He, the moment he the has way... that moment where he says, like, if people tell you you're unattractive, it means they love you because they can tell you you're unattractive. Like, they really love you because they don't care how you look. That's what he says to her. Yeah, but I didn't think of that as uh, sexual love as the film would, uh, as Mantis would describe it. And does also make the comparison to Well, yeah, yeah that's, that's the bit that would make it creepy. But then, you know, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, maybe, that's, maybe that is what they're going for. That could <laughs> exactly be it. I really don't think so, though. I think they are. <laughs> I think their, their whole thing is... She has no family. His family. Well, both of them had their families ripped away from them. Um, uh, whether she knew hers or not, and that, and uh, yeah, she's kind of searching for a father figure, which she definitely doesn't have an ego, and he <laughs> is. He still pines for the wife and child that he lost. Um, and I, th- I thought it did end up. I thought it did end up being quite sweet because the. I think the Gamora jokes in the first film are grounded in. Um, in kind of hatred and antipathy that the characters have towards each other to begin with. And even though it, even though it kind of is chipped away at, it's, uh, it's, it's still there at the end when he's saying it. Um, and yeah, this time it felt like it was, it was sweet. And like I say, Dave Batista sells it so well. He's, he is, <laughs> he is a comic gift, uh, for James Gunn. His, his <laughs> delivery is, is absolutely spot on. His and and his his raucous laugh is a joy every <laughs> every, time. every single time. <laughs> yeah, um, I did want to bring that up though because I want to use it to seamlessly transition into the Gamora Nebula subplot um, because again I feel like James Gunn's intentions are pure here. I think he is a director that wants to give his female characters better representation i think he wants to give them better material i think he wants to have i think he wants to have a big blockbuster movie where two sisters uh like thrash out their differences and end with a kind of begrudging emotional acceptance and i think he wants to have strong kick-ass female characters and and he's added more to the film and i think he's doing all of the things right I just think he has a tin ear for female characters. Like I just don't I just think I just think he can't he can't get it right because the Nebula Gamora stuff feels like such a stretch every time it's happening. It feels like it's the same characters bashing the same emotional beat over and over again. And the for, for the time for the time that those two characters have spent on screen together over the course of two films, the hug didn't feel earned to me um and i and like i I don't know i don't think it's like any i don't feel like there's any less effort or any less i don't know skill brought to brought to the table in the writing for that relationship as there are others i just don't think i just think james gunn isn't great with female characters i think as well as well as that that, i think part of the problem is that like the difference in talent between Karen Gillan and Zoe Saldana is so huge. 
Like Although, the chemistry do, between I mean, one, them one just thing... isn't there because I mean, Karen Gillan is very bad. <laughs> See, I was. I, she's, this is what the main thing I was saying about movie, which is that I think she's better in this one. But it would be hard to be any worse. Pretty poor in the first one. Also, she's very good. It's not that she's just that has no talent. Uh, I don't think she's very well cast for that. Yeah, cast. No, yeah, she's yeah. very good in other things. Yeah, maybe that. Maybe that's more like um, she's but, talented, but you know, not in this role. Like this role is wrong for um, her. And as much as I think James Gunn spoke but about, at least the accent's well, better this yeah. time. Right? <laughs> but James Gunn great. spoke about how much she. James Gunn spoke about how much he loved working with her and enjoys her. Like being around on set because she's fun, and I think that's why she's in the I'm, I'm, in the I'm film. Sure that's the case. Yeah, yeah, I think that's why she's in the film this much, not because Nebula is a great character who had to be here. I I, I also think I think the character design is strong, and I think that like physically, the fact that she is taller than most of the other actors in the film as well works to her advantage. <laughs> she's I think I think she's got a great frame for playing that kind of cyborg character who has to click herself back into place. Um, and I actually I like the I like the extra stuff that's added into the backstory, the context that we get to the to why the rivalry is there. I just yeah, I just think James Gunn has a tin ear for the for the actual for the actual like emotional beats of it. I think the the setups there is just the the execution is is lacking. And again, like Mantis is fun, but she's kind of in the background. I, I, yeah. there is also I, I, feel, something I feel like he's he's were, trying his best. If you if you were coming at this from an angle of not you know already feeling that um, these films really didn't serve the female characters very well, then the innocent doesn't understand things female character archetype is you know, sometimes a bit of an uncomfortable one. And I think it's a bit of an obvious... I mean, I th- again, I like the stuff you talked about with, with Drax. I think with Mantis, they stay on the right side of it being funny and it being nice and, and generally okay. But I think you could lump on that as a criticism as well in, you know... Um, hmm. Oh, oh! Isn't it funny that the that the silly young girl character doesn't un- doesn't really understand exactly what's going on, you know? Yeah, I think it comes back that this with the stuff that I was talking about right at the start of the film about uh, of the podcast about the film being a little bit clumsy with these subplots with this stuff going on. Like I say, I don't think the I don't think the um, Nebula Gamora subplot really works at all. Um, I think. I think you're right about Rocket that that subplot doesn't really come into its own until Rocket and Yondu are put in that cell together. Um, and it, it's because because they're all split up and none of them are getting a huge amount of screen time and none of the subplots are, are allowed to get too deep or too complex. I think it is clumsy and I can understand why people don't love the film. But then I actually go back to the actual experience of watching all of those subplots and all of those scenes and they all have fun stuff in them and they all have, and because it's all going on in this visual world that James Gunn has created and because the the gags are so frequent. And I thought that I, I can't remember a time, and I know a lot of people have said this, but I can't remember a time that a gag undercut an emotional moment for me because I welled up like three times in the last 20 minutes <laughs> of the film and I don't remember at any of those points going like, Oh, that undercut the emotion of that moment. If anything, I remember a gag kind of being a nice bit of respite. Like, after, are you, are you after talking Malaga. specifically about the Zune gag? Because <laughs> that the I, Zune I think, gag is great. I think 
but I think that was my I think specifically joke as a comparison point because I think I think there's something really interesting, like just to, to jump to the end of the film for a minute, that a lot of the the beats of the film are familiar beats from the first film, and I expected this to after the stuff with Yondu, which you could kind of compare to the stuff with Groot, to have you know a, a nice emotional moment with peter in terms of you know connecting with his with his family and whatever and then build up to a nice big triumphant ending and actually it stays relatively low key and downbeat for the for the very end but what you have in in inverse is the moment when peter gets handed something to do with music rather than it being the big emotional moment where he gets awesome <laughs> mix volume two it's because i did when, it, when i saw him about to hand over a package i was like don't tell me they found awesome mix volume three that would just be ridiculous and the fact that it's that <laughs> zune instead is just perfect and the fact that it, the, the joke then leads into an emotional song and the the real moment of emotional manipulation that the film gives you. Whereas in the first <laughs> film, it was the emotional moment leads into playing the Jackson five, you know? Well, it's, is it ain't no mountain high enough and then the Jackson oh, ain't no mountain high enough and then the Jackson yeah, five. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, the point is it's, it's uplifting music to through to the end of the film. Whereas this yeah. one I mean, closes with father and son, which is just, you know, do you think as well that was like having him smash the Walkman and stuff? Do you think that was James Gunn saying, okay, he sticks over? I would like to think so, because I think that would be... But at the same time, in the closing credits, it shows him taking a spare Walkman from somewhere. <laughs> well, the cl- yeah, that's the thing. If if that saying sticks over, the closing credits very much say shtick is still going on. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Um, what do you guys think of the soundtrack? Because again, I've heard a lot of people saying it's so on the nose, and I think that Cat Stevens song at the end is the reason why you would say that. And again, Seb, you said you were skeptical about Mr. Blue Sky because it, I mean, I, I, I that feels I, un- a little unequivocally love the way Mr. Blue Sky was used. I think that that was yeah. fine. Um, I am really not a fan of Fleetwood Mac, so while again, I think it was used quite oh, well. Fuck off. Um, listen, don't get don't get me started fuck on the way right that Fleetwood off. Mac are overly revered by our generation for no good reason whatsoever. God damn um, you. The only reason I like the chain is for the bit that they that they thankfully didn't use in the film, which is the bit from the Formula One coverage. Formula One song. Uh, <laughs> I think it worked in the film. God. It's okay. That's probably the one Fleetwood Mac yeah. song that I don't hate, but I just really hate Fleetwood Mac, guys. Really, really don't like them. Uh, Go in, listen to Tango in the Night, and then come just back. obsessed with rumours. You're all oh, so unimaginative. Yeah, fuck rumours. Listen, listen to Tango anyway, in the Night. Um... In general, I, I, I came right. out of the first film really loving several of the... I loved the songs that I already loved from the first film, which was three or four of them, and there were three or four that I didn't know as well, thinking about things like Redbone and um, even Hooked on a Feeling, um, that, I, that I came out of loving partly because of their association with the film and I thought they were great songs. That didn't really happen with this one. The, the bits of the soundtrack that I liked were the bits that I already liked and the rest was, yeah, it was agree. there, it worked okay. I did like, I don't actually know the name of the song, but the one uh, with, uh, the one that was used when the um, the Sovereign tickled, turn up. Sovereign. The Sovereign. Sovereign. <laughs> And then it then it pops up very briefly when their ships appear. It's it's almost used as a theme for them. Oh, Wam Bam Shangalang by Silver. <laughs> that's the one. Okay. I enjoyed the way that was used. Oh, My Sweet Lord. <laughs> I really like. But again, that that's what I'm talking about with stuff that I already liked. Yeah. That was used really well in a really nice scene. And I like that song anyway. So... <laughs> I was going to say, I just, like, I got a nice thrill from hearing Cheap Trick, but that was because I already knew it. (laughs) 
Yeah, that was that was it for me. I think the first film, I, I think the first film I was uh, like familiar with a, a, about half of that soundtrack going in, and I liked half of the soundtrack's use in the film, and most of the others I thought were like uh, were like really incredibly well used when they were chosen. I think there's a couple of duff notes on this on the soundtrack and the way they used in the first Guardians, but we'll. We'll get to that when we actually do the podcast. I, I would agree with you here. The ones that I didn't know, I kind of, uh, like, may, maybe maybe on a few rewatches or a, free, a few re-listens to the soundtrack, I'll have a bit more affection for them. Um, the one that I found the strangest, and I'm going to use this to pivot into the one thing that we haven't really talked about, and it is the crux of the movie, is the ego-Peter Quill relationship. And... The Brandy, You're a Fine Girl, Looking Glass. Um, I mm. didn't know that song going in, and I thought it was really weird to choose a song that uh, a lot of the audience wouldn't know to be the, like, to, to actually, like, appraising mm. the lyrics as a, as a, as a key central scene. That felt really strange. Also, that the song didn't mm. sound that good. Yeah, for, um, for that to be the and, song that's and discussed the- as being, like, the greatest, um, <laughs> piece of music, it's like, it's it's not as good as any of the songs on volume one. <laughs> was that supposed to be the gag that they picked the worst song to be like Earth's greatest? I d- yeah, but I I didn't I didn't really get that. But yeah, let's the use fact that-, that it wasn't clear. I mean, suggests, you, you, you yeah, could. Yeah. You, I thought that didn't. You could even, make even if that was the point, for it Mr. was a Blue bad Sky choice. in that role. Quite frankly, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or George Harrison. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so to to go to go now, we'll we'll kind of I think draw our discussion to a close by actually talking about the main plot mechanic. <laughs> oh yeah, we of the need movie, to get which that. <laughs> is Peter finding his dad. So Peter finds his dad. Ego basically turns up. I loved the moment where he was just yes. waving at them from the spaceship <laughs> while he's taking out all of the sovereign fleet. Um, but Ego turns up and he's like, "Hey, I'm your dad," and he is. There's not. There isn't anything more to it. He is, and um. The, the yeah the the twist in the tale is that just we we shouldn't be trusting this guy now is that something that we should have we should have been assuming from a lot a lot further back given that he's playing ego the living planet is he <laughs> i was ego, gonna say ego's like, never a good guy right uh he's sort of he's one of those characters end, who is like galactus occasionally I he mean, will turn up and be if helpful, a guy is named speaking, ego he's operating on a very <laughs> and level. he's a living planet it should tell you a lot Incidentally, just on or just very quickly on the subject I mean, of said living planet, um, the the planet landscape that is what Krypton from Man of Steel wishes it was. <laughs> it's like it was that, but it was Krypton <laughs> from Man of Steel, but with like color and imagination, and not just brown. Anyway, never an opportunity to <laughs> have feel... a dig at Man of Steel mist. <laughs> no, it wasn't so much a dig at Man of Steel as just the fact that it felt very Krypton. It felt like a vision of Krypton when you've got this sort of you know amazing. Um, mm. planet lands anyway tango tango in the night cover <laughs> and i would and i would go to the visuals of kurt russell now and say i thought that when you actually put chris pratt and kurt russell next to each other on screen um it it, visu- it works visually i i bought them as father and son <laughs> in the same film and it made me think that chris pratt he's he's not at the same level but he maybe is the closest we've got to a kurt russell in 2010s action oh, don't cinema. say that but i, I mean that's well, who, who else kind of straddles the line between handsome like um straightforward action movie lead who can kind of play the 
badass hero when you want him to, but also can play the goofy kind of chump who's a little bit out of his depth. Um, he's not on Kurt Russell's level. I, I just um, think, particularly when he's got like white hair and a beard, um, I find Kurt Russell very difficult to distinguish from Jeff Bridges, and he's playing a very Jeff Bridgesy <laughs> role in this film. You could have put Jeff Bridges. I did in that get role that when played it basically the same. When way. he was de-aged, I was like, oh, they've de they could de-age like Jeff Bridges and Kurt Russell <laughs> next to each other and see if you can tell the difference. We'll we'll get a flashback scene to a young Obadiah Stane yes, meeting a hopefully. young uh, ego on Earth. <laughs> That'll be the pre pre credit sequence on Infinity War. um but yeah what what did you think to i i kind of i liked kurt russell in the role i felt i thought kurt russell was good value for being kurt russell Mm. um like i said i didn't trust ego from the moment we saw him so i actually thought it was quite refreshing that peter didn't trust him to begin with and even when he bought in they still had gamora and drax kind of in the background being i mean drax not hugely but at least he was questioning mantis and that mantis was was like on on the verge of telling again mantis feels like such a star trek character she feels like the like the the one the the pretty girl on the planet who will eventually spill the beans like (laughs) I, i that this was the aspect of the film that felt star trekky and I liked that no one ever trusted him. So it kind of, it didn't feel like a twist when it came to me. It felt like all of the groundwork was there. It felt like it was just a case of when do we find out what he, what he's actually doing and the extent, and yeah, the extent like, of his plans. In a way, it would have been more interesting if they had distrusted him and screwed it up that way. And it turned out he was <laughs> actually in the right. Yeah. Like, in, it would have been more Guardians. <laughs> it in a it sense. would have been uh, the original Kang and Kodos story from The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, I, it, I think it kind of had to be that this is what I mean about this being a film where the plot is also incidental because the plot is basically here for Peter to meet his dad, for him to realize that he doesn't know his dad and his dad doesn't really care about him. So it doesn't really matter who his dad was. And he had this family the whole time and he, and he was raised by a guy. There was a guy who raised him and maybe it wasn't perfect, but at least that guy cared for him. Um, and so it, it all felt like it was in service of the emotional ending with Yondu more than it was actually in service of how do we get the film to a big third act action sequence because you can get to the third act action sequence in any number of ways he has to meet his dad and his dad has to be a shit if if we're going to get to the yondu ending um (laughs) what i did what i did think was i mean this was perhaps the clumsiest aspect of the film okay so we're gonna have three different characters in three different settings discover the ego is evil at the same time, so Rocket's going to find it out from Yondu, uh, Nebula and Gamora. Are, in fact, four, four sets of characters. Your, your, uh, Nebula and Gamora see this stack of bones under the planet in the cave, um, which the living planet just keeps there. He couldn't have consumed them or anything. They just had to, <laughs> just had to be kept there to be found. Uh, Mantis tells Drax. And then, so I'm thinking, okay, so all of these characters are having it revealed to them. And then... Kurt Russell monologues to Peter. I was like, did, did did he really need to like have that big sequence where he says, and particularly 
blah blah blah. blah. Then I killed yeah, your and mother. I, and I put that tumor in your mother's head. You don't like. You're literally what you're trying to do here is get your son on side so he will work alongside you. Don't tell him that you killed his mum. That's not a good plan of attack. <laughs> I mean, I can I can sort of see it as like he thinks Peter's now yeah. sort of on his level of being a celestial being who doesn't care about you know the the other insects in the galaxy anymore like i can sort of see by it on that level but at the same time it would have been more interesting if like peter's adopted family had come to him and said actually your dad's evil and he sided with them like that would have been more interesting in service of mm. the arc yeah and i and i think that's ultimately that's all of the stuff that i'm gonna i think every time i come back to this movie i'll, I'll think yeah, some of, some of that second act stuff is pretty clumsy, and this isn't this isn't the most elegant film. Um, but because of where it leads to with the character revelations, like I think most of them did land for me. And actually, when the chain starts playing again, and Peter has those flashes of who his actual family oh, are, that's a lovely little sequence. <laughs> it's, it's so great, and I loved that it was a mixture of footage from the first film. Um, from this film and um and and flashbacks to earth and stuff but also the fact that there was original footage in there mm. and the shot of peter and rocket flying through the air yes. with big goofy grins on yes. their face was <laughs> uh, like and that's that's what i mean about the kind of the it's a big emotional moment the chain is kicking in again we're seeing these flashes in peter's head it's the equivalent to the care bear sequence from the first film um and there's that, there's this goofy little thing in the middle of it. And I was just, it just put a big grin on my face while I was starting to well up. And that's, you know, that's, that's what, that's what I want a Guardians of the Galaxy film to do. I, I for, for me, that doesn't undercut an emotional moment that enhances the emotion at the moment, because I remember how much mm-hmm. I love these characters while I'm getting a bit, a little bit weepy about it. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I got, I got real emotional there. I got real emotional during the funeral. And yet, father and son is such a, is such an on-the-nose choice. Um, but there's, I think there's a bunch of on-the-nose choices in the first film. And I think whenever I hear father and son, even if you're not trying to trying to make me weepy at that point, I'm going to be a yeah. little bit like, oh, a <laughs> little bit of a little bit of a lump in my throat right now. <laughs> it's just that kind of song, isn't it? Try, try, try being a father. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was gonna say, wait until you have kids, then. <laughs> so did you? Did I mean James? You didn't. Uh, Seb, did you? Did you have a little? Did you have a little cry? Yeah, totally. Pretty, pretty, pretty much from when that whole sequence started. Pretty, pretty much from the point at which Yondu died. I was like, oh, and then yeah, I, like admittedly, admittedly, I did like, you know, when during Yondu's funeral. That's when I felt like actual human. We emotions. got him. We got him. <laughs> like in in contrast to the first time I saw the first time I saw Moana, there were like what four times in the first twenty minutes where I was like borderline tears. I thought you were about to criticize Moana, and I was going to have to cancel all future episodes of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've seen it about eighteen times now because oh, Emmy loves great. it. So. Emmy's got great taste. I just want to quickly say how interesting it was that James Gunn cherry-picked a lot of Marvel mythology here, but also changed tons of it. Like, Peter Quill, in the comics, Peter Quill's father is not Ego the Living Planet. Um, The Aisha and Adam Warlock are not aliens. Mantis isn't an alien. 
the you know the guardians aren't ravagers like he mixed up quite a lot here which is unusual i think he's he's the joss whedon of marvel's cosmic side though isn't he i mean we, sh- we should say as well he's directing guardians of the galaxy volume three yeah and he's a producer on infinity war yeah he's he, i think he's shaping this side of things um mm-hmm. and i'd be i'd be surprised if he hasn't had some hand in thor 3 as well even yeah, especially yeah, yeah, given that um, Jeff Goldblum turns up in the closing credits, did we spot all yes. spot him? Yeah, uh, yeah, good point. Um, oh, that's—I mean—that's what—that's what we should hit on before we finish, isn't yes, it? That was we gonna... should hit on the on the closing credit sequences, and so, and also the 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 bit part way through the film that then also leads into one of the closing credit sequences, yes. which I did want to touch <laughs> on. <laughs> so let's let's get the let's go through them one at a time. The first one is Craglin playing with the the whistle and the fin and the mm-hmm. arrow and stabs. Uh, Drax. <laughs> that's but, and, and do we, do we think funny. at all that that's setting up him actually being a more significant character in the next one? I think Craglin will be back because he's Sean Gunn, yeah, but I don't think he's going to be any more significant than he was. No. <laughs> no, no. I just and I just always when I when I see Sean Gunn, I'm just assuming that he is still playing Kirk from Gilmore Girl, Girls, <laughs> but in space because <laughs> he's always the same character um, and. Go and go and see the Belko experiment where he plays a quite funny cafeteria. It, it's probably. It, I mean, Kirk famously had every job in Stars Hollow, so I'm sure that he will have every every job. Mm-hmm. It's it's still him, basically, is what I'm saying. Um, so that one was fun. Um, the other, another jokey one, the teenage Groot. Um, a good gag, good little gag scene. Yeah. Is there any? <laughs> And it, as I say, I mean, you know, all, 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 what that really is there to do, aside from being a gag, is to say bye bye, baby Groot. Um, yes, to see a new Groot in the next film. So I was. That's the tragedy. The tragedy of all. Babies I was so glad. I was so glad that they didn't choose to make another masturbation gag there because Guardians of the Galaxy has not been afraid of making um, uh, those kind of <laughs> jokes throughout this throughout this franchise so far and I really thought that that's what the kicker was going to be but it wasn't thankfully um what was the next one the uh the the former guardians getting together um and we should mention some of the cast there Michelle Yeoh playing one of the characters and Michael Rosenbaum from um Smallville as Martin X the sparkly guy um Miley Cyrus apparently with voice cameo and so you guys think that we're going to see a lot and Ving Rhames, yeah. You guys think we're going to see more of these characters in the next? I think film. I think the casting suggests that they're not throwaway. Um, as I say, I I I really do think. That I, and be, the casting. Uh, and I, I I I just from the brief time he was on screen, Sylvester Stallone fits into this so well that I'm already <laughs> looking forward to more of him. Yeah, I mean, I I think the casting was just James Gunn being like, "Who are my favorite people <laughs> who I haven't worked with? Let's get him in there." Um, do you, but I do think I do think we're going to see more of them. Do you yeah. think it would be a shame if we didn't? Do you think Peter Quill, as a as a child of the eighties, doesn't find it slightly strange that like Kurt Russell and Sylvester Sloan are hanging out in space now? <laughs> like, or do we do we just have to assume that in Peter Quill's version of the eighties, there are some big gaps in terms of the culture? Like he didn't he didn't get big trouble and uh, escape from New York. <laughs> they just, he, they're just the, those those people look similar. That's all. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so he's still got those films, but these people look different. Okay, that's fine. Okay, I'll go with that. Doesn't make sense. Um <laughs> The fourth post credit sequence, I think. Yeah, fourth is um is yeah. the Stan Lee one. Yeah. Um Stanley and I the Watchers. Like, <laughs> I love that Stanley is there with the Watchers. 
I hate what this has wrought in terms of the... <laughs> I hate the unified theory fan, of fan anything. Theory. And well, James Gunn has actively confirmed that all of the Stan Lees are the same. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah, he's ruined uh, my... Admittedly hasn't been updated for a few years, but I was going to do an updated version of the superhero movie league table. Um, where you take actors and you multiply the number of superhero and co- the number of comic book films that they've been in multiplied by the number of different roles that they played. Last time I did it, which was like I think it was pre Avengers even, or it might have been no, I think it was pre Winter Soldier. Um, Doug Jones was top, but Chris Evans was closing in because Chris Evans had a multiplier by virtue of Scott Pilgrim and, in fact, no, he had Scott Pilgrim and The Losers and Fantastic Four. Um, mm. But I had to do a special line for Stan Lee. Um, on the assumption that Stan Lee was um, playing so many different characters, and like if you if you counted his roles, he would have topped the table with thousands of points. Um, but his score is going to drop dramatically if it turns out he was playing the same character in all of them. So he might have to be legitimately in the table rather than a special case now, mm. and it's going to be much harder <laughs> to work out. <laughs> I just it's it like the the scene is fun because he's with the watchers and that. Like the design of them was, uh, I thought I got a kick out of the, the design of those characters on screen. But yeah, every time I read online, oh, this guy has just proved that all the Pixar movies exist in the same mm. universe. No, they just have <laughs> Easter eggs to their other films in each film because they're yeah. animated and they're working on yeah. films five, six, seven years ahead of time. Not everything has to be a cinematic universe. <laughs> hey, that's the name of the podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't and Stan Lee's character it's it's less fun if you say it's the yeah. same guy every time um but hey I, maybe I'll just choose to ignore that and enjoy the scene for what it is which to is be fair Stan Lee it doesn't say that it's the same person every time watches. it just says that it's the same person as in Civil War that's all it actually says yeah. it implies that yeah, he's the yeah. others but it only states that he's the FedEx mm. guy so but as as we know, the best the best Stanley cameo doesn't exist in the yeah. MCU anyway. <laughs> so, uh, although his first Guardians of the Galaxy one was pretty near the top, I thought. Um, yeah, um, and then the fifth post credit scene because there are five. What's the fifth one? I've already forgotten. Yeah, oh, Warlock. it's the Adam well, the fifth Warlock one, one. Is the Stanley one because that's the very end. Adam Warlock's the fourth one, I think. Yeah. Oh, is it? Okay, which we've discussed. Which is yeah, he's not an interesting character, but I just like that they're doing it. <laughs> I just I, and I did I was I was like oh hang on is that going to be the cocoon is that going to be the cocoon yes it's the cocoon as like I say I don't care about that original story I just but I did celebrate when I saw that being done <laughs> and if it if it means more of Aisha then I am on board because like I say I just thought she was hilarious I what? I think they could they could do a lot more with her that that could be as a, as a foe for the guardians she could be a, a lot of fun so I thought yeah. she she added so much to every scene she was in I loved the the flirting with star lord in the first scene <laughs> i loved i loved her walking down that carpet the, the that the physical comedy of her walking down the carpet was worth the admission price alone for me yeah. um and so yeah if she if she can turn back up as often as possible that would be great i hear she does something similar in terms of performance in the man from uncle which i didn't have any interest in seeing before i heard that and now i'm gonna go after i'm gonna have to watch the man mm-hmm. from uncle um which is also getting a sequel but yeah so uh, uh good to see elizabeth debicki and yeah i think the the most interesting thing now will be whether adam warlock debuts in guardians volume three or infinity war 
or Infinity War Part Two, whatever that's. I I feel like um, just that, like as a final point, that I I did feel like this film, other than the brief mentions of Thanos, didn't do anything to push the Guardians towards Infinity War, and I was actually surprised that there was no link to. I thought the film was going to end with with Peter deciding to go to Earth once he'd had that sense of closure. Um, and especially given that we see events affecting events on Earth. Mm. And I thought, oh, this film is going to push the characters in the direction of Earth so that they can run into the Avengers in Infinity War. In fact, what this seemed to be doing to me was if and when we see the Guardians in Infinity War, that's going to be completely incidental to their story because they're going to be popping up in the Avengers' story. And it'll be about the Avengers running into them. And what this film was setting up for the future was entirely stuff for Guardians Volume 3 and onwards and not stuff for the wider cinematic universe, mm. is what I felt. Yeah. I, I, that... I mean, Go I... On, James, sorry. I do sort of, I do sort of think Adam Warlock's going to be in Infinity War. I would not be surprised. Well, yeah, for the for the, for the reasons that you discussed, which yeah, do make yeah, sense. Yeah. But but just that was that was my feeling coming out of it. Yeah, I mean, you could you could uh, you could see even the introductory scene of the Guardians in Infinity War being the Guardians fleeing across the universe with Adam Warlock in pursuit. You know, uh, that 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 could that could make a, a degree of sense, or that and that's what draws Thanos in a search. I don't know. But yeah, you're right. I think as well. I think even though that this film references Thanos pretty, you know, semi-regularly with Nebula and uh, Gamora, it feels. I think Thanos at, the, at this point still feels like more of a Guardians character than he does a rest of the Marvel Universe character, because his his influence hasn't been that widely felt by the other by the other films. It's just it's just the fact that he's there and we know he's coming. It feels like a nice respite that these film that the Guardians films are a little bit. Um, they feel like the stakes don't feel high, even though the stakes of the u- like the universe is literally going to be. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It's like the universe could be wiped out without the Avengers knowing about it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas everything <laughs> feels so important and serious in Civil War, and literally what happens at the end, maybe like Captain America and Iron Man could kill each other, but like there's not actually that many big universe-shattering things that are, that's happening. Whereas in this. The entire universe could be about to be co-opted by this planet douche, and um, you, you know it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like it's that important. It's interesting. It's a matter of tone, I guess. But yeah, mm. um, I, I always I always feel like these that hopping over to the Guardians feels like a little bit of a breather from all of the big stuff that's going on in the rest of the. <laughs> of the Marvel Universe, even though they are closer linked to Thanos than the rest of the Marvel Universe is anyway. <sighs> anyway, so that was Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Uh, do you guys have some comic book recommendations for me? Yeah, okay. Um, This is one of those things where I'm not sure how many issues you'll be able to get through. But there is at least a core story that I can recommend you. Um, So you're probably going to end up buying a collection of like maybe... 12, 13 issues, but you only have to read four okay. almost. Um, and this is the collection Maximum Security, which was a crossover event from the early 2000s, um, in which Ego is going around attempting to awaken other worlds, and uh, as a result, a lot of aliens end up on Earth. Uh what happens is Earth ends up being a prison planet for, uh, like all the other alien races who send all their criminals there. Okay. Um, so you have a lot of tie ins where, like, the X Men fight a random alien character. 
but the actual main four issues sort of revolve around ego and uh the sort of marvel universe's interaction with him so specifically the ego seed that gets planted at the start of this film i feel is taken from this this story right um so that's why i'm recommending it okay excellent um seb um so well i kind of picked this recommendation before the film um and before i before as we discussed rocket ended up being a slightly less significant part of the film than i'd anticipated but (laughs) he is my favorite from these films because we haven't done the first film yet also these are comics that come after the first film so that it does make sense to do it as a lead into this so it'd be i'd like you to read the first five issues of the 2014 rocket raccoon series uh written and drawn by scotty young um, although there is another artist have you already read them or have you just heard they're really good no i've just uh, heard they're good and i <laughs> i and i i've enjoyed everything that i've come across that has scotty young's name yeah i mean he unfortunately he he didn't um draw the whole run because i mean his stuff does work best when he's also drawing it but there's another art the other artists started to pop up from issue he drew the first four issues um issue five is a quite standalone um uh issue but but it tacks on quite nicely to the first four it's a really nicely told issue that i think is just a good fun standalone to read um so there's a four four part story arc issues one to four then issue five on its own which uh the artist is uh i'm just gonna look this up because it's uh jake parker i knew it was somebody parker and that it wasn't jeff parker um so jake parker is the artist on that but his style is also quite cartoony and, and goes quite well with with scotty young stuff um now if you want to you could go on and read more um the the scotty young run there's like there's a think about 11 or 12 issues of rocket raccoon by scotty young then that takes a break and there's i think a five issue group miniseries written by jeff loveness um, then it goes back to Scotty Young doing a Rocket Raccoon and Groot series that's basically a continuation mm. of his because his Rocket run is Rocket and Groot. It's it's called Rocket Raccoon, but it is a Rocket and Groot series. Um and similarly, what I'd also like you to read as the sixth issue of this recommendation is issue two of the Groot series. Now I know that you're gonna bristle at being told to read issue two of something. So if you want, you can also read issue one. But issue two is a standalone issue. Uh, of the Groot series that tells the story of how Rocket and Groot met and it is one of my favourite single issues of recent years it's just because because I love those characters so much it's just so lovely and so great so Rocket Raccoon issues 1 to 5 and then Groot issue 2 but if you want to read any additional stuff from those runs around it it won't take you very long to get through them so feel free to read further and just a side question are all of these kind of like more influenced by what the movie was doing than the original oh like very much so I mean the original Rocket Raccoon stuff the original um, Bill Mantlo stuff that that four issue run from the 80s is good fun Um, but these yeah these are comics that exist because of the movie and i mean the character the character in it is a combination of what he was like in the abner and lanning guardian stuff but with elements from the movie very firmly tacked on as well and the closeness of that relationship with groot of them being more of a double act comes much more from the movie even the orange outfit that he wears like in it comes directly from the movie so if you like movie rocket raccoon this is basically a comic about that character because they they reshuffled the guardians anyway to make them much more like the movie versions in the wake of the movie Uh, because you know the comics other than their very dedicated community of fans had not been a massive hit in the way that the movie was so 
Uh, it's it, it, I think also actually, yeah, as an exercise, it's quite interesting to see how how much the movies can sometimes feed into the comics. Excellent. Okay, so um, it sounds like two two very different comics there, but I'll look forward to reading those. Um, just just for the listeners as well, I know obviously we wanted to get this podcast out pretty pretty quick after watching the film, so I do have the Avengers reading to do alongside this. So next week you will get a another megasode um, with the Guardians recommendations as well as the Avengers recommendations. Uh, but the Avengers recommendations, I'm already quite deep into, and I'm very much looking forward to talking about those on the podcast. <laughs> I should apologise for making you read that tank of comic. Because <laughs> you reacted exactly as I yeah, expected. I didn't, didn't get it. <laughs> you were right not to. <laughs> um, okay, well, we'll move on to our final section now, which is the pitch. Um, and this guy is, um, is riffing on something that Kevin Feige said during the promotional trail for... Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Um, he was talking about where the Marvel Cinematic Universe will be going once Phase 3 is complete, which is um, kind of all of the announced films at this stage, the ones that have release dates. So it goes up to Avengers 4, and then I think Inhumans was going to be after that, but it has been pulled now. So I think it's basically by the time we get to Avengers 4, there will have been 22 movies. And what Kevin Feige said is, what happens after that will be very different I don't know if it's Phase 4. It might be a new thing. So my question, or my pitch that I want from you guys this week is, pitch me the new thing that is not Marvel's Phase 4. So you can obviously go in a whole bunch of different directions with this if you want to. Um, but James, I'll come to you first. Pitch me the new thing that is not Phase 4. Uh, I mean, the only way I can imagine this working is if at the end of Avengers 4... Uh, someone using the infinity gauntlet manages to rewrite reality um and thus reshuffles the existing characters and continuity into something that is almost but not identical to the current one and that would allow you to continue having you know people like bendit cumberbatch and paul rudd in their existing roles and continuities but also you get to tell new iron man stories and new captain america stories without your hugely expensive star actors. So is it is it still like a is it still like nine or ten movies that are leading towards a big crossover or and or is it still? Yeah, it's essentially a continuation of what happened. Only they've recast a bunch of people. So it'd be like phase phase four point A or phase or it'd be Marvel <laughs> Marvel two point phase one. It would be phase four point now, I believe is the okay. current. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, Seb, what is the new thing that's not phase four? So I've gone for a completely different tack here. Now I know that this would make no commercial sense because what Marvel will keep on doing <laughs> is they will keep on putting out superhero films in the format that is popular. Yeah, but sorry, just... I, I just want to go on record as saying I think Kevin Feige is lying, and they will keep <laughs> they will keep this continuity rolling for as long as yeah. the mo- movies are making money. I think all he means is that they won't have Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr. in. Yeah. They won't, it won't be based around those characters. No, my, my idea is to go totally different. So when Avengers 4 is out of the way, um, for a few years, let's say over the course of two to three years, you completely change tack and you release three or maybe four movies. And these movies are basically... Have you heard of a comic called Marvels? Yeah, did, um, did you not... By 
I'm not sure if you've had to read it on the I podcast. Don't I don't think you have. Uh, but it's, it's drawn by Alex Ross, who drew Kingdom Come, and it's written by uh, Kurt Busiek. And the premise is basically it tells the the story of the whole history of the Marvel Universe through the eyes of an ordinary bloke in New York as a, a photographer. He's like so he's like twenty in when World War Two breaks out and and Namor and the and the Human Torch first show up. Didn't I read the through... Marvel's Project? Oh, maybe yeah, you did. That's yeah, different. that's a, a totally different thing. Right. Yeah. Um, so this is basically so. So this story is from his perspective and about how about he about how he reacts to the to the superheroes and how the people around him react to the superheroes. And it touches on lots of major events from Marvel history, but from a street level perspective. Um, and basically, I would do that. I would do a series of four movies following one character, going all the way back <laughs> to the first Iron Man film, and following the story that we've just seen over the last ten years or whatever. Um, but told from his perspective, so you could have, you could bring back in for little appearances the hugely expensive actors. Um, but if the ones who didn't want to do it, you could just use archive footage or just you know not have them at all. Basically, what you showed would be dependent on who you could get, and you just you just tell that story, the story that we've already seen, but you tell it from a completely different angle. Can I just say, I think the reason Marvels works is because it's got some great material to work with. And if you were do- doing Marvels in the MCU, you would not have the coming of Galactus or the like existence you of the X-Men. You would have the Battle of New York. Yeah. And what else? Like Daredevil. Whatever happens in Infinity War. Yeah. I, like, he wouldn't even be able to work for the Bugle. <laughs> he doesn't have to be a photographer. He doesn't literally have to be Phil Sheldon. It could even be four movies about four different characters. Um, each having their own little story going on while the events of the MCU are going on around them. It's just all about perspective. I mean, I like the idea. You're right. It 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 will never happen. It doesn't make any commercial sense. But it does. It does. You sound didn't. Fun. You didn't ask for something. No, I, I didn't. I've never believed that this segment has been about commercial success. Oh, this section's <laughs> been about capitalism from word go. That's what. That's been the well, issue. In that case, you guys I think they what should I'm looking ju- for. All right, in which case, I think after Phase 4, they should drive a dump truck full of money up to the houses of Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr. and make sure they come back. We'll do Iron Man 4, Captain America 4, and then Civil War 2. Yeah. Except not the comic Civil War 2. <laughs> I mean, in and that this, case... And by I that wanna... point, they still won't have given um, Captain Marvel her own film. I want to change my pitch to they just keep doing what they've been doing, except Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr. are now CGI. Because the technology is there. Hmm. <laughs> I, I personally We don't need him. We don't need him. <laughs> I personally think what they mean is yeah, I think I think Chris Evans I think probably the main four Avengers from the first film will probably move on. Uh maybe not Ruffalo, but probably. And that we'll we'll get a universe driven by Brie Larson and Benedict Cumberbatch and Paul Rudd and, and some of those other characters. Um, and I think we probably will get a Black Widow film and obviously franchises will continue. Guardians of the Galaxy will get its third film. I just think it won't be tied to get all tied together by a one big Thanos kind of thing. So I think they'll stop doing phases. I think it'll just be three, three films a year and we'll, we'll eventually get big crossovers here and there. We will st- still get Avengers films or different team films, but they won't, I mean, they won't be one. But they one, still got to do the, the box sets. So you still yeah. got to have phases somehow. I'm not. I'm, I, I'm just. I'm just not sure. I think it might just be become a, a continuous thing where they remove the idea of it all building to this one thing in, in the <laughs> way of, that people will jump off after that's got there. I sort of wish I'd thought about this before you actually asked the question. Now, because what I would have actually pitched is 
they instead of doing specific movies, they just do three Marvel movies a year, and you don't know what you're getting until the trailer comes out. It's just they've got the whole Marvel universe to draw on, and they can tell us sto- any story with any characters. If they want Ant Man in space, they can find a way to do that. Yeah, um, I yeah. don't. I don't think. I, I mean, I don't think they will do that either. But no. <laughs> again, capitalism. Um, okay, but I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm going to have to go back to capitalism as well, and I'm going to, I'm going to pick, uh, I'm going to pick James's. Uh, I think Seb, your sounds great as a comic, but James's makes more sense for what to do with with a big cinematic universe. So, James, you win the pitch this week <laughs> for a change. <laughs> um, okay, but that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, so, if you are enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM. Or your podcast app of choice. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. And James, do we have someone to thank this week? Yes. Thank you to John Hornsby for pledging. Uh, we appreciate your money. <laughs> and support. <laughs> I couldn't have put it better myself, James. Um, you can find more episodes of the show at cinematicmultiverse.com. You can get in touch on Facebook, on Twitter at CU underscore podcast, or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. All the times that I've cried, keeping all the things I knew inside. It's hard, but it's harder to ignore it. The tricky thing about adamantium is that if you ever manage to process its raw liquid form, you've got to keep it that way. Keep it hot. Because once metal cools, it's indestructible. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with X2. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.